Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I am Jason Lustig. I'm the host of the Jewish History Matters podcast. Today, I'm joined by Adam Teller, who's going to be speaking with us about the 17th century Jewish refugee crisis following the 1648 Malnitsky pogroms, um, and how it helps us to understand the transnational transformations of Jewish life in early modern times, as well as when we want to think more deeply and broadly about refugee issues on a wider scale, both in history and also this is something which is still very relevant today. Adam Teller is a professor of history and Judaic studies at Brown University. He has written widely on the economic, social, and cultural history of the Jews in early modern Poland and Lithuania. And his most recent book, which we're going to talk about today, is titled Rescue the Surviving Souls, the Great Jewish Refugee Crisis of the 17th Century. This is going to be the starting point for our conversation today, but in many ways, it's not just about the book. We're going to be talking about the big issues that surrounds it. It's really an exciting book. It was recently a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award in history. It's a pleasure to have Adam here with us. Uh, thank you so much, Adam, uh, for joining us on the podcast. Welcome. Really glad to have you here. It's a real pleasure. It's a real pleasure to be here, Jason. Absolutely. I want to get us started by thinking about kind of what is this history in the first place? When we look at the story of the Melnitsky pogroms and its aftermath in the mid-17th century, what is going on here and why does it matter when we want to think about early modern Jewish history? Well, in the early modern period, Poland and Lithuania, which was then called the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, was the largest, wealthiest, most developed Jewish center in Europe. In world terms, it was only rivaled by the Ottoman Empire. And it had gone through about 150 years of very strong social, economic, and cultural development, making it this powerhouse in the history of European Jewry and the place where all of Europe looked in a number of different fields, perhaps most particularly in terms of the Shivot and Jewish law, but not only that. What happened in 1648 was that um, after that century and a half of development, everything grinds to a halt. There's a huge uprising in an area of Ukraine, which was then part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. What happened was about a third of the population was killed in a, in a very short time in a number of pogroms in the summer of 1648 and the fall. This was a kind of major crisis in European Jewish history. In fact, it was called Horban. They used the same language as was used for the destruction of the temple. It reshaped Jewish life and it changed the way in which Europe functioned because at exactly the same time as Poland, Lithuania ground to a halt, the peace of Westphalia, Central Europe, and in particular Germany, on a path of development. And so the, the roles of Poland and Germany in, in European history also began to change. Why is it important to me? Well, until now, most of what the research that's been done quite naturally focused on the death, right? As I say, there, a third of the population in Ukraine was killed in a year or two. And actually following that, there are two other wars in Poland, uh, one with Russia and one with Sweden, in which more Jews are killed. And that's about a period of 20 years of war is going on. Um, and so most research looked at the numbers of dead. I mean, a lot of ink has been spilled trying to work out how many died. In the early modern period, that's a very difficult thing to do because there aren't decent sources. When people thought about the significance of 1648, they really thought about it in terms of the dead and the losses. I, when I started working on it, decided to take a different approach. I'm much more interested in the living, in the survivors. 
What did 1648 mean in terms of the people who survived? What happened to them? And I discovered that there are these huge waves of captives and refugees that leave Ukraine. Some spread out within Poland. Others are taken to the Ottoman Empire as slaves where they are redeemed. Others flee to Central and Western Europe. And all of a sudden, Polish Jews crossing the Jewish world as refugees or captives and then refugees. And the whole Jewish world has to organize to decide how it's going to deal with the problem of these Polish Jews. And so that's really where I was coming from. And the more research I did, the more I realized that this is not a small thing. Scholars have argued about the significance of 1648 in global Jewish terms. What I discovered was that, in fact, there are very, very few Jewish centers in the 17th century which did not have to face this problem, either in terms of the destruction itself or in terms of the refugees who reached there. You are looking at this huge destructive series of events on a very personal level, right? You're, you're thinking about the events of 1648 and its aftermath, not just in terms of the numbers of people who were killed or who were displaced from their homes, but in terms of these human terms. So can you say a bit more about what it means for you to look at these events from this kind of individual perspective and about how this point of view helps us to look at 1648 and its aftermath in a new way? First of all, when I was thinking about studying refugee crisis, it became absolutely clear to me that you can't study a refugee crisis without studying the refugees. It just doesn't make any sense. Say so you can look in broad terms, in martyrological terms or in the structural economic terms, but you cannot actually make sense of the events as they happened on the ground until you know how it affected the actual people who lived through it. That's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to bring the perspective right down to the lowest possible level to understand the immediate social and cultural and religious consequences of what happened on an individual level. And because it touched so many people, both in terms of the refugees themselves and in terms of the people with whom they came in contact, that gave me a whole new perspective also on these meetings. There's a whole series of meetings that happen between these refugees and the people around them, whether there's the people in the Ottoman Empire or the people in uh, Central Europe or in Amsterdam or in Italy. I was able to go right down to the individual level of talking about what that meant. And that way I could see in much closer detail how the Jewish world organized in order to help these refugees. By also looking at the individual level, I was able to think in slightly more detail, not just about the psychological aspect of a refugee crisis, being a refugee and having to flee, but also in terms of the question of, I mean, the religious aspects and how people deal with trauma and all of a sudden, there's a whole range of other questions which are key to understanding refugee crisis that by looking right down at the individual level, I was, able to, I was able to touch on. I was also able to look at gender issues, because at that level, you have voices of men and of women to an extent that they survive. Absolutely. Can you maybe tell us a bit about some of these individual stories that perhaps illuminates, like you said, these broad issues? Like, is there a particular case or a particular situation that really helps us to think through what the 1648 pogroms and its aftermath really meant for Jews on an individual basis? You can look at it on a number of different levels. So, for example, there was a man called Nathan Hanovel. He was from Zaslav in Ukraine. 
and he was forced to flee his community on foot. And then he took his family out of Poland, across Germany to Amsterdam, from where he went to Italy. He was there's a kind of refugee trail. I was able through Hanover to understand a, the trail that the refugees took, the path that many of these refugees took in order to save their own lives. He left us a superb first-hand account of the flight from Ukraine. And he talks about, not just about the fact that all the community was fleeing at the same time, there's this huge, huge crowd of people on the road, three trucks wide, walking very slowly. He also tells us how people felt, what it felt like to be a refugee, the feeling of loss of uh, personal security, loss of possessions, suddenly being exposed in, in a very cruel world and trying to hold all that together as he sort of manoeuvres his family out and he tells stories of families breaking up in the flight. So that gave me a number of different things. It gave me the, really what it meant to be a refugee. He tells us about other aspects which are really interesting, which is to say how Jews and non-Jews exploited the refugee crisis in order to make money. They cheated the refugees in one way or another. I also saw how he dealt with it by travelling to Amsterdam, how he made a living along the way. He would, some, he would preach in some communities. He wrote a book or two that he, that he published in order to make money. When he got to Italy, he finished his yeshiva studies and became a rabbi. And then he got treated quite differently. Then he got a five-star treatment for, for refugees. So just by following this one man's life story, all of a sudden I get a picture of, sort of these big, big movements. And the meetings, Hanover, among other things, he wrote a, a guidebook. It was a, a language book. So the, the refugees could speak to the people around them. So he had Hebrew and Yiddish and German and Italian and Latin. And he has conversations there, like conversations he would have had on the road, you know, about meeting somebody in the carriage and trying to work out if they're Jewish or not, right? Or when he's being threatened by a highwayman, how he responds. So you also get this picture of what it meant to be on the road. And so Hanover's story opens up all of that aspect. And he's meeting, he's meeting German Jews, he meets Jews in Amsterdam, he meets Jews in Italy. And so it opens up that aspect too. Well, I think one of the other interesting things about this story, um, in addition, I mean, is also thinking about how Jews are moving in a different direction. You're talking about Jews moving westward, you know, from Eastern Europe towards centers of Jewish life in Western Europe. But also there's this entire element of the Ottoman Empire as well. Do you maybe want to say something about how we can look at the events of 1648 through the lens of uh, Jews who were brought to slave markets in Istanbul and elsewhere? Part of what was happening in 1648 is that a group of Tatars from the Crimean Peninsula who made their living by slaving, usually non-Jews, in 1648 they take large numbers of Jews and transport them for sale to Istanbul to the slave markets. And thousands upon thousands of Jews are taken out of Ukraine. They're marched to Crimea, put on ships, and then sent across the Black Sea and taken to Istanbul. This set up a huge crisis for the Jews in Istanbul because there is a Jewish imperative, the halachic imperative, to redeem captives who've been taken. And suddenly in Istanbul, like thousands upon thousands of Jewish captives are appearing, and they have to be ransomed, the money has to be found. So the Jews of Istanbul begin a process of raising money in order to save these Jews, in order to ransom the Jews. You see, within the community, there's a huge effort to raise money from within, 
right? And Jewish men are giving, Jewish women are uh, donating their jewelry. The Rabbinite and the Karaite communities combine. But then what happens, and what's, I think, the key moment in that story is that the Jews in Istanbul send out an emissary, first to Venice and then to Europe, in order to raise money on a transregional scale. And this is a moment at which we can begin to see the Jewish world pulling together in order to raise money and redeem the Polish-Jewish captives in Istanbul, men and women, although most of the sources talk about men, but we know that men, both men and women were taken and were redeemed in Istanbul. No, I mean, I, I think that you've actually led into a really interesting and important aspect of this entire history, which is that you are illuminating some of the ways in which we can see the reshaping of the Jewish world taking place in this time period and surrounding this particular crisis. You just mentioned the emergence of transnational networks of philanthropy and of cooperation between Jews in far-flung places. So do you maybe want to say something about how the events of 1648 helped to develop the Jewish world in new ways in terms of the emergence of new forms of Jewish organization, new forms of Jewish cooperation and, uh, and Jewish culture as well. So do you maybe want to say something more about how these events and, and this time period helped to shape the Jewish world in its aftermath? What was being used in order to re redeem the Jews in Istanbul were initially Mediterranean-wide ransoming networks that were created in order to help Jews who had been captured by the pirates of the Eastern Mediterranean. And these were, as I say, the hub of that effort was in Venice. However, once the Polish Jews come in, and there's this huge demand for, for money to ransom them, the Jews in Venice begin to pull much harder on the connections that they have, and they extend them well beyond the Mediterranean. So they're sending letters to Amsterdam, to Hamburg, right, to Belgrade, Sophia, right? and the letters are being sent out in order to bring money to ransom the Polish Jews in Istanbul. These communities become in much closer and much more regular contact. The economic networks become much more galvanized. They begin towards a single goal right? because there's this one crisis that needs to be dealt with. These connections, because there are always connections within Jewish communities, that isn't new. But the way in which they're brought tighter and tighter and they're given a single purpose, is something new. It sets Jewish philanthropy in a new direction, where you can set transregional goals, um, you know, philanthropic goals to be met. And that was really the key thing that happened after 1648. The appearance of all these Polish Jews in, in dire poverty in Istanbul forced the Jewish world to come into much closer contact. It did something else. Philanthropy until 1648 had very largely been divided between Sephardim and Ashkenazim. So we know, for example, there's philanthropy for the Jews in the land of Israel. Well, in that world, the Sephardim raised Jews for the Sephardim and the Ashkenazim raised Jews for the Ashkenazim. And that's how it worked. In 1648, these Polish Jews, all of a sudden, calling upon Sephardic Jews to raise money, to recognize that they have a responsibility beyond their own Sephardic world to the Ashkenazic Jews. And that also brings the Jewish world much closer together. It's really most striking in Amsterdam, Amsterdam, which is a converso community of Jews who are sort of returning, new Jews, right, returning from being conversos, for whom their natural identification is the nation, it's the, the Portuguese Jewish nation. And all of a sudden, right, they are being forced to um, acknowledge a deep religious connection with Jews of Poland. 
And that is really reshaping. So the connections are getting tighter. The goals are in the goals are being set, and the boundaries between Sephardim and Ashkenazim are beginning to crumble. They don't break down immediately. It's a long process that takes a long time, but it starts in 1648. What this leads us into, I think, is is the broad question of the development of Jewish peoplehood and solidarity. I think that we can look at a number of instances in Jewish history and see the ways in which uh, the sense of a you know, outbreak of anti-Jewish violence or a specific case led toward growing instances or, or a growing sensibility of solidarity. And I'm thinking here myself as a modernist of, uh, say, for instance, the Damascus affair or the Mortara affair in the 19th century, uh, leading towards the development of the Alliance Israelite Universelle and their activities in the mid to late 19th century as a manifestation of Jewish solidarity. I mean, I think that what you're pointing to here is an earlier development of a sense of peoplehood. So how is it that the events of 1648 helped to anchor our understanding of the development of, of Jewish solidarity as a phenomenon? Like I said, I mean, we, you can first of all see it happening on the ground. The money is flowing, not always huge amounts of money, but constant stream of money is being raised and being sent. And it has to be explained. The texts that we have from the time talk about they use the language of kinship, of brotherhood. Uh, in the historiography that was written about this, great emphasis is made on a term which is called Klal Yisrael, which means the, kind of the, the Jewish collective, right? And suggesting that what we see after 1648 is one of the early cases of a spontaneous act of national solidarity. Scholars in Jerusalem were very big and still are very big on seeing it in that way. I had a real problem with that because it's reading back. The term Klal Yisrael and modern national sensibilities have nothing to do with the 17th century. The language isn't there. What was there, what was clearly there, was, the, first of all, a, a shared religious imperative, right? It's Pidion Shruim, and that can, combined all the people. It wasn't enough, however, because the Sephardim could have said, well, we redeem Sephardic captives, and you can deem, redeem Ashkenazic captives. So something else happens, right? And what's happening is that in the early modern world of the 17th century, which is a world of expanded communications, the stories of the Polish Jews are spreading much further and much wider. And so the demands of religious solidarity are getting greater. And the communities find themselves sort of in a situation where they don't want to refuse. But it's not a national solidarity in the sense that we would know from you know, the late 19th to 20th century. That isn't what's happening. It's a expanded religious solidarity. If we want to understand the process that you're talking about, it has to start from there, like from a shared religious consciousness that expands beyond its medieval or you know, bounds into a new place. Surely it's laying the foundations for the globally unconnected world that starts in the 19th century with the Damascus affair, with the Alliance and other Montefiore. But they have already, as they're working, a tradition on which to build. They're not starting from nowhere. There is already, from 1648, a trans-regional tradition of expanded religious sensibility and philanthropy, which has shaped the Jewish world. And it's on that that the 19th century and the 20th century can build into the phenomena that we know today. Well, I think that one of the things that is so interesting about 
what you've done in this book and in this this broader direction of research and, and rethinking uh, 1648 is that you are participating in this scholarly movement of rethinking the so-called lachrymose history of the Jews. Obviously, the events of 1648 are in many ways central to this reading of Jewish history as a parade of tragedies of one kind or another. You know, it's, it's one of the, the obvious examples of such a tragedy. But you are flipping this story on its head, like you said, by focusing you know, not exclusively on those who were killed, but on the survivors. So do you maybe want to say something briefly about how looking at 1648 helps to reorient our perspective on Jewish history as a whole? I mean, most famously, as you said, Baron argued that in opposition to the previous historical understanding that it was the disasters that shaped and drove Jewish history, anti-Semitism as a major driving force, he argued, very cogently, I have to say, that there are much longer periods of peace and cooperation than there are of violence. And he, rather than seeing those, what he called the short bursts of violence as driving history, he suggested that they were simply punctuations in a much longer process of cooperation, growth and development. And so he said, we really should not be writing what he called a lacrimose, a tear-driven uh, form of Jewish history. What's happened since Baron? And Baron actually quite clearly delimited what he was talking about. When he looked at the, uh, at the medieval period, he saw it differently from the modern period. But today, in general, following Baron, is like the grandfather of all historiography that we have today. He's the dean of Jewish historians, certainly in the United States is that people are now unwilling or unable or don't want to talk about the role of violence. We can write whole histories of Jews in places where anti-Jewish violence is clearly a part of the, of the environment without mentioning it. Anti-Semitism gets shunted off into its own little corner. So what I argue in this book is that that's a huge mistake, because although violence itself, right, a pogrom right, or an attack, can last a, a very short time, a few hours, a few days, a few weeks, whatever, and then it stops, and as it were, peace resumes. That isn't entirely the case, because by looking at the individuals who were involved in 1648, I could see how, in their lives, what happened to them continued to play out. And in the lives of communities, how dealing with the refugees was an ongoing issue that lasted not months, or even years, but decades. I mean, if you look at some of the writings of, of the rabbinic figures who were caught up in this, they could be writing two or three decades after the events. And yet in the introductions to their books, they always, but always have a description of the violence that they went through in 1648 in the most vivid and sometimes, you know, really violent and unpleasant terms. What I argue is that if we want to understand the role of violence in Jewish history, we can't just look at the violence itself, the moment of violence. Violence had a whole range of consequences, right? I've talked about, so far, I've talked about kind of the entire reshaping of the Jewish world following the violence of 1648. But it can be felt in different communities. It can be felt in the way Jewish law is written. So, for example, the refugees from Poland who went to Germany, one of them, David Ben Shmuel, wrote a book about the differences between Jewish documents written in Poland and Germany, which continues to be used today. The shadow of that violence really is very, very long and has enormous consequences over time. What Baron wanted to do, logical though it was in the terms that he said it, in fact, if we don't understand the long-term 
consequences of violence. We really can't understand how Jewish history develops. And so what I wrote in the book is we need to rethink the anti-Lacrimose conception, right? We need to rethink Baron, not to throw it out. We don't want to go back to pre-Baron. That would be ridiculous. But we do need to understand that Baron was not thinking about this really important moment of how violence is responded to and how that response can be an incredibly creative force, right, in the course of Jewish history. Absolutely. I think that beyond the historiographical aspects, right, you know, we think about Salah Baron and the people who have written in his tradition and those who have pushed back against it. I think that this approach calls on us to think about other tragedies in Jewish history in new ways as well. For instance, uh, one might talk about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem is something that happened at a particular point in time, but it reverberates throughout Jewish history in terms of the transformation of Jewish religion as a whole, the way in which Jews look at themselves and so on and so forth, or even looking more recently, we can talk about the Holocaust. This is an area where I spend a lot of time thinking about it myself, but usually when I think scholars talk about the Holocaust, the focus is very squarely on the time period of the Nazi regime. And it is on the events leading up to the mass murder of the Jews, the actual process of the killing, you know, the death camps, et cetera, et cetera. And increasingly, people are talking about the aftermath, but so much of the focus is on the actual events themselves. So does this approach that you are talking about in terms of 1648, you know, are you essentially calling on us to reapproach the way we think about tragedies in Jewish history differently across the board? Absolutely. So just thinking about the Holocaust, um, some of the most interesting testimonies that you can read as survivors are those which tell of their experience from before the Holocaust during the Holocaust and after the Holocaust. We like to think of the Holocaust as this major, you know, which it was, a huge break in, in Jewish history after which everything is different. But in the lives of the people, there is absolute continuity from before to afterwards. The change that happens in their lives is a much more, it's not gradual, isn't the right word, but it, it has significant elements of continuity. Their reality is actually a reshaping of their lives. It can be dramatic and it can be drastic, but that's what it is. It has its room before. And so when we think about these disasters, we need to understand that the way they're dealt with is going to be through what we would call received wisdom. When you face the aftermath of the, the disaster, people are going to think it through in the light of what they already thought, in the cultural formations and religious formations which they brought into it or the people around them had, right? If you think of it in those terms, we really cannot just ever look at one or other sort of tragedy on its own terms. You really have to see it in a, a continuity of development. Dratic and, you know, I mean, you could hardly say that the destruction of the Temple in Jerusalem wasn't an incredible dramatic break, but it was working within a context and we need to understand it in that context. And only in that context can we understand the change that came in its wake in its real terms. The other thing that I would say that I think was very important to me in this book is, once again, I focused very heavily on this question of reconstruction, how the Jews managed to reconstruct their lives, how it was, for example, that the Jews of Eastern Europe were not only back on their feet, but were taking up major roles 20, 25 years later, very, very soon, bearing in mind the number of dead and the size of the refugee crisis. You could say the same about the expulsion from Spain in 1492. It does not take, in historical terms, very long before the Jews are back on their feet and doing extremely well. 
that raises a really interesting question in my mind that nobody has asked. And that is, do Jews have culturally determined ways of dealing with this kind of crisis? There are enough of them in the, in the, the very long course of Jewish history for us to start thinking about the strategies of survival and the strategies of reconstruction over time. And my guess is that once that research begins to be done, we will be, see that there are ways in which Jewish society deals with it that have been found over time to be effective and that are used you know, time after time. And it's why Baron can argue that violence is not so important, not because it wasn't important, but because actually the Jews are very successful at overcoming it, overcoming its consequences, negative consequences. And so, yes, I think that's a really important aspect of Jewish life and Jewish experience that Baron's approach you know, hid. You couldn't understand it through what Baron wanted. But in fact, it seems to me something very deep and that needs to be understood in a much longer chronological term, certainly than I did. I was just looking at my one moment. But I think it's a key phenomenon. Well, right. I mean, I think that especially going back to something that you said earlier in our conversation, it is really fascinating and really critical, I think, to understand how and why and in what ways Eastern European Jewry was able to bounce back, which is to say that, for instance, if you look at two other major tragedies in Jewish history, we already mentioned the Holocaust, but you pointed to the 1492 expulsion of the Jews from Spain. These communities are able to bounce back, but in new places in many respects. What is it about the aftermath of 1648 that allows Jews to bounce back in the same place where this violence had taken place in the first place? And especially in the context, as you mentioned earlier, that, that this is a key moment where you see the ascendancy of Western and Central Europe in kind of broader European historical terms. And then in the aftermath of 1648, Poland and Lithuania are beginning this process of, uh, to some extent, it's already taking place, but you have this process of declining power in the region, leading up eventually 100 years plus later to the partition of Poland by Russia, Prussia, and Austria. So what is taking place here in terms of allowing the Jews to bounce back in this location in relationship to the broader transformation of Europe in the aftermath of the Peace of Westphalia? Okay, first of all, the Jews aren't expelled by law from where they are. They flee. They're refugees. They're not expellees. It's a slightly different thing. Some are taken as captives, but they, you know, it's never been forbidden for them to return. Polish Jews were deeply attached to the environment in which they lived. They saw it as a key religious center in Jewish life. I mean, Vilna is famously known as the Jerusalem of Lithuania. There are places of the Jerusalem of Poland, right? This was a major center of Jewish spiritual, religious, cultural life. And the Jews didn't want to go. There is, in fact, one ruling made by some rabbis in Ukraine saying that it's such a disaster that Jews shouldn't go back to Ukraine. They should leave and go somewhere else. And the Jews don't want to know. They go back as, as soon as is possible. What's happened? What The t number of things happened that allow this to work. First of all, when the Jews flee, when they get to other places, whether that's inside Poland, where it's easier to return, or even outside Poland, they are given the possibility to support themselves. They're not made passive recipients of philanthropy, given possibilities to work and, and look after themselves, so that when it comes to the moment of returning, reconstructing, deciding what to do next, the options are in their hands. They can decide what they want to do. That's part of how 
that system worked at that time. I don't think it's key. I'm going to come back to it in a minute. Many of those Jews would choose, having been refugees, having been treated very well in a town like Slutsk or wherever, they would choose to come back and reconstruct their lives. Legal terms, the situation of the Jews in Eastern Europe was such that they were able to do so. It's very interesting. The Jews can bring the people who have, not the soldiers, but anything that's been, stuff that's been stolen from them, people who have been murdered, not as part of a, a military action, those criminals or those wrongdoers can be brought to justice in the Polish courts by the Jews, which they do. The Jews in Poland have a very strong history of social organization. So it takes a very short time before Jewish communities are back up and functioning. And so it is a very, very rapid return, generally speaking. And the ability to reconstitute the Jewish society in a rapid, very quick time. Two other things are important. First of all, and it comes back to this question of the Jews' response to tragedy, in many places, it looks as though the Jews were able to reconstruct their lives more quickly and more effectively than their non-Jewish neighbors. In fact, after the initial trauma of displacement and return, within a relatively short time, they've strengthened their position in the towns where they live rather than being weakened by it, because their response is more effective than their non-Jewish neighbors. That's on, on one level. There are other levels in which this is really a moment of reconstruction. And one is, spiritually speaking, when your whole world is turned on its head, in order to sort of resume your life, you need to give it that some kind of meaning. It has to have meaning. And Polish Jews were active in trying to create meaning to what had happened to them. The best story of this is a story that happened in Krakow, which was full of refugees from Ukraine. An enterprising Jewish printer in Krakow went to the rabbi, a very famous Yom Tov Litman Heller, and said, listen, we've got all these refugees. We've had all these crises. We want to have a prayer. We want to have a day of prayer. We want you to write a prayer, a memorial prayer for the dead of Ukraine. And Yom Tov Lippmann Heller says, why would I do a thing like that? We've got plenty of prayers for the dead of people who have been killed in massacres. Choose one and say that. And then that doesn't satisfy either the printer or the community who come back to him and say, no, 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 no. We need a prayer for us. But then he takes a medieval prayer, the rabbi, and adds a couple of verses and says, now here you are, use that. And the community comes back a second time to the rabbi, it's all chutzpah, right? And says, no, write something for us about our experience, which he eventually does. He calls it Ele Ezkara, which is uh, the name of the prayer for the, um, the 10 martyrs in Roman times. But nonetheless, these people want to create a spiritual meaning that is theirs, so that what's happened to them is their experience. They do want to tie it with what happened before, but not subsume it, which is why this idea of Ele Eskara worked so well. Another thing that they did was to create a day of fasting, which, is, has, which has psychological aspects as well. But on that day of fasting, the day at which the first great massacre happened, that's also a day of a medieval fast. So that the Jews of Poland were sort of insisting that this was their tragedy, this had happened to them, but at the same time insisting that it formed part of the continuum of Jewish suffering. And so they were able to make this an individual experience without negating the connection with God, the connection of the Jewish people's significance of what was going on. Another aspect I wrote about in the book, it's very difficult to write about for the lack of sources, but it's this question of overcoming trauma. Trauma is a very difficult topic. And I treated it not as a cultural phenomenon, but as an actual psychological phenomenon. 
the way in which people overcome sort of these kind of traumatic experiences. And if you look at the ways in which trauma is treated, trying to reconstruct life stories, to reintegrate the traumatic events into the flow of normal life, what the Polish Jews did, did exactly that. They created a special day during the year. That wasn't something they did, they invented. That was a, a custom they already had. And I guess it's a custom that worked before in overcoming trauma. It's why they did it. So that the communities would come together. They would sing the songs. They would tell the prayers of what had happened to them, along with all the other prayers of Jewish suffering. It was done in a controlled environment, right, in the community. People were being supported. And it was done in a very stylized way so that it, you're not plunging the, the mourners back into the depths of, the, uh, you know, of their experience, but the memory is a very stylized memory of the violence. And I hypothesized, and I couldn't do more than hypothesize, but um, I think it's a very important thing that needs to be studied more. It was by doing that that the Polish Jews were able to overcome that aspect, the psychological trauma of what they'd gone through. And if you put all those things together, it suggests that the Jews were able to reconstruct their lives and do so well in such a short time. It's because they had in place, they had in their toolkit strategies that they could use that would allow them to position themselves socially, economically, religiously, and psychologically in a place where they could recover and rebuild. Now, just to finish up the last piece that you said, which is that the reversal in power between Poland and Germany, what happens is it, that is a process that begins in 1648, but it's not felt for a while yet. And so it's, it's, that's an irrelevance in the story that I'm telling. What we do know is that Polish Jews begin to migrate westwards during the pogroms and continue afterwards, but it's not a major phenomenon for a while. That is an old way of thinking about it. That you think about the post-1648 as a decline. Social and economic history of Polish Jews in the 18th century has already suggested that it wasn't a decline. And my research here has suggested reasons why it wasn't a decline. It wasn't a decline. There were things that, negative things that were happening, but you characterize that period as a period of decline. That would be to miss the point. Well, I, I think the point of what I was trying to talk about was not among the Jews, but a question of the broader geopolitical situation within Europe as a whole, which is to say that you see the continuation of a vibrant Jewish life you know, in Eastern Europe at this point in time when the state of Poland and Lithuania is weakening, leading eventually to its, its breakup. And I mean, some scholars uh, have, have argued that it's actually the weakness of these states that has contributed to the vivacity of, of Jewish life, that, that Jewish life tends to be stronger in places without a strong state, at least in early modern and medieval Europe. I would think I'd argue slightly differently. What the Jews' success in sort of recreating their society did was it enabled them to renew the socioeconomic relationship they'd had before 1648 with the wealthy nobility of Poland, which had allowed them to settle Ukraine in such numbers and do so very well there. After 1648, when those nobles come to start restructuring the Polish economy, no, I'm not talking about the Jews, I'm talking about Poland itself, that is the group with the political, social and economic power to reconstruct Poland after the disasters of the mid-17th century. They turned to the Jews because that was one of their key tools in the period before 1648, and the Jews are in a position to answer. And so that relationship between the magnates and the Jews is what's renewed to the benefit of both parties and to the detriment of 
Poland's development as a centralized absolutist state as we see in other in other countries. So it's kind of saying what you said, but slightly sort of just turning it a little bit. And so, yes, the point is that the Jews are able to ally themselves with the rising power in Poland, which is very, very strong. But in fact, it's the nature of that rising power that makes Poland's long-term reconstruction more difficult. I think that part of what's interesting here also is that you're illustrating the way in which the events of 1648 and the, the specific details of the Jewish history here, how it contributes to our broader understanding of the development of Eastern Europe as a whole, which is something that I always think is important to emphasize, right? That these events that take place within Jewish history are not strictly about the Jews, but they are really playing a part in the broader history in the wider developments that, of course, come back around and impact Jewish life all over again. Exactly in the Jews' ability to not just reconstruct their lives, but to strengthen their position in the economy and to ally themselves with the strongest, you know, the, the most vibrant force in the Polish economy that allows both the Jews and the nobles to do so very well and to reshape Poland. Poland is reshaped after 1648. In both in terms of its own politics and in terms of its Jewish politics and in terms of Jewish life. I mean, it's, it's like this you know, moment of, of reshaping. But in fact, this crisis sheds light on other phenomena as well in European history that might be worth thinking about. Because the 17th century is a period of, um, the early modern period, a period of religious refugees, ex religious expulsions of various sorts. One of those famous, perhaps, the Huguenots. But there are you know, myriad other Protestant groups and Baptist groups. Catholic groups, if you think about Spain, you have the Jews are expelled, you have the, the Muslims are expelled by force from Granada, then the Moriscos and the Conversos flee. It's an age of, of religious of movement, and that's how it's generally been studied. And it's very important because these are religiously motivated movements. But my research, once again, by looking down to the human level, I'm able to suggest that what we're seeing is also an expression of the early modern communications revolution. Possibilities for travel, maritime technology, print, the possibilities for transregional networking, news spreading was connected with print. All of those things, which you can see so clearly in the Jewish story that I'm telling, in fact, are playing out in all of those refugee movements. So, so the Jewish story because it's not part of the you know, more famous Reformation story that seems to drive so much of the refugees, but is its own, has its own dynamic, in fact, adds a, a new perspective to the way we, we understand religious refugees in general. It's also very, very interesting in terms of the meaning of borders in early modern Europe. Like as you're talking about like these different ways in which the 17th century Jewish refugee crisis illuminates the broader issues, maybe you could just continue to say more about what this means as we look at this time period uh, as one both of religious refugee groups and their experiences, and also, as you were saying, about the development of states, right? 1648, of course, as we've said before, we, we see this as the Peace of Westphalia, which is often identified as a key moment in the emergence of the, of the modern nation state. But you're saying here also how this indicates the porousness of borders. Well, the enormous circulation, both of people and of money, between Eastern Europe, Amsterdam, Venice, and the Ottoman Empire. That circulation is moving the whole time. It's crossing Germany, right down, as say, into Italy. There is movement in North Africa as well. I mean, I've got really interesting things happening in Cairo. And, you know, even as far 
West as Morocco. It is a new shape of understanding. First of all, the Jewish world, where we're so fixed on the idea of center and periphery. That's how we understand the Jewish as a center. And it has, it's not how it was in the 17th century. It was a world of circulation. None of those centers drastically outshone any of the others. They were all key and important and circulation. But for example, Venice and the Ottoman Empire are daggers drawn in the mid-17th century. And yet the Jews are traveling backwards and forwards. They're sending money backwards and forwards. They're doing deals backwards and forwards. And they're crossing those borders seemingly without any concern. We see that also Polish Jews cross into the Holy Roman Empire. And some of them ask permission, but a lot of them just don't. They just move. And what you see there is an expanded, not just a Jewish world, it's actually an expanded Ashkenazi world. The Ashkenazi world, you know, whose roots are in Germany, but who develops in Poland, suddenly begins to expand. And then you have this really interesting meeting between Poland and Germany across the borders as people go backwards and forwards. People get jobs in one place and then another place, and they're moving. Well, that affects trade. So money is moving backwards and forwards. And this is creating, as I say, it's creating a new kind of European connected history. We sort of know it in terms of maritime history, the Mediterranean history or Atlantic history. But what I'm seeing is it's something much broader than that across the continent. And the Jews, because they are the group that they are, right? They're working under the radar so often. They are showing us, you know, how that works. And I think that's another really interesting and important phenomenon. Is there a connection between the geographical movement of people as part of this refugee crisis and the spiritual upheaval. The scholars uh, and many people look at the emergence of Shabtai Tzvi, for instance, uh, after 1648 as being connected in, in some fashion with the tragedies which, which befell the Jews at this time. And the focus there is often on how people respond to trauma on the one hand. But the, the other question is, why is it such a widespread phenomenon? this belief in Shabtai Tzvi as the Messiah. Is there a connection between this movement of people that you're talking about and the way in which this religious upheaval takes place on really a global scale, um, as opposed to being localized, for instance, uh, in one place or another? I mean, the most famous treatment of that is Gershom Sholem, who initially thought that, indeed, 1648 played into the Sabathian movement, but then changed his mind. And he argued that what happened in 1648 was local to Eastern Europe and the Sabathian movement was global. And so the two, there was no causal connection. Well, I was by no means the first person to point out that Sholem was wrong in suggesting that what happened in 1648 was local. My research shows that really dramatically just how not local it was, covering, as I say, Eastern Europe, Central Europe, Western Europe, the Ottoman Empire, you know, and North Africa up, up to and including Morocco. Shabtai Tzvi himself was well aware of what was happening. In fact, he married a refugee, a refugee woman from Poland who'd gone, fled, like I said, from Poland to Amsterdam, from Amsterdam to Italy. And she was living in Livorno, probably on the margins of society. And Shabtai Tzvi heard about her and married her. So he was married to a refugee from Poland. And he worked the story of Polish Jews into his theology. However, what I discovered, which I think is sort of key to understanding not just Sabathian theology, but the Sabathian movement, is that Nathan of Gaza was touched by this story as well. He grew up in the Jewish community of Jerusalem, who had, for the last century and a half, lived off money raised for them in Eastern Europe, which was the richest Jewish community. Suddenly in 1648, 
No more money is coming to Jerusalem. The community sort of falls into poverty. People are dying of starvation, which means that there's a greater effort on fundraising from the land of Israel, right? And they have their own philanthropic networks, which are pretty much the same as the ransoming networks. They sort of, they overlap almost entirely. And his father is, in fact, a Shaddah. His father, in fact, is one of these emissaries who travels around raising money to try and cover the, uh, the money that's not coming to the Jerusalem from Eastern Europe. So Nathan of Gaza was deeply, not only aware of, but in fact, dependent on. And there are other aspects that go into the book, which I can't go into here because it takes me forever to explain it. But that he was well aware of the networking around refugees and around refugee ransom and around supplying money to the land of Israel. And when he came to try to spread the word about Shabbatai Tzvi, he used exactly the same channels. The process of bringing the Jewish community, the Jewish world closer together, that I described earlier, is one that he exploited. What I would argue is it's no cause or effect. The refugee crisis begins this process of strengthening the connections between communities. And then the Sabathian movement, which exploits those, those connections, makes that even stronger. So in fact, they're not one causing the other. They're both two sides of the same coin, causing the same long-term development. And it's another one of the ways that the story I was trying to tell, I think, has these rever reverberations that go so far beyond the actual you know, details of the, of the story itself. Yeah, I mean, there's so much that we could say about this moment, the, the Sabatian movement, the refugees, and so on. But I want to perhaps broaden our thinking here beyond the specific moment, which is to say that I think that this story of a 17th century refugee crisis in, in Jewish life has something to teach us and to tell us about how we think about refugees, more broadly speaking, both within this time, right? You talked about the ways in which we can look at other refugee groups, you know, religious refugees like the Huguenots, for instance, and others. So we can look at the relationship between the Jewish refugee crisis as well as others at the same time. And also when we look to other refugee crises in history, including more modern ones and even contemporaneous or contemporary issues, when obviously refugees continue to be an even more pressing concern just because the number of refugees is greater now than it ever has been before. So what do we learn from looking at this historical case and all the things that surround it that can help us think through refugee issues on a really broad scale? It was certainly one of the things on my mind when I was working on the book. One of the advantages that a historical study has in that field is that I have a picture of an entire crisis from beginning to end, from A to Z. Most, certainly in contemporary terms, refugee crises, they are open-ended, unending, very difficult. You're so engaged with immediate issues that it's difficult to get perspective. And so the one thing I could contribute, I'm not saying I contributed an awful lot, but that I could actually see the, the entire course of one, one refugee crisis. And thinking about it in terms of the research that's been done on contemporary issues, I think that this case has a number of really important lessons that can be drawn from it. First of all, what you don't see in the Jewish refugee crisis, which enables it to be sorted out so quickly, is you don't see a loss of agency on the part of the refugees. Not, not in any of the situations. And even when they're being happy, it's very, very rare. It happens a couple of times that the refugees are treated as a group. A group of refugees comes and they're sent on as a group. Much more common is that each individual person, family, grouping, whatever, 
is given the tools it needs. It retains its agency, in short, which means that it has the tools. Each group, each individual has the tools to reconstruct its life much more quickly and much more effectively than waiting for someone else to get organized and do something for them. And it turns out to be very, very effective. There's also the question of refugee self-help. The Jews, certainly the ones that go to Central Europe, they organize their own networks of self-help within the groups. So you have a committee of Polish Jewish refugees in Silesia writing to the emperor and saying, look, we've got these needs. We're here. We need this. Can you, you know, and able to sort of deal with their own situation themselves. So that's question of agency. Question of solidarity we started with is also key. The fact that the ethnic or religious solidarity could be drawn upon in order to create networks of help is incredibly effective. It's an incredibly effective way of working. I mean, it's forced on the Jews, but it's very effective. I'd say two more things that I, I discovered. I've also mentioned them in the course of this, but one is the importance of meaning, spiritual meaning, so that the, what's happened is not destructive of the whole structure of somebody's life. Their life can retain meaning. It gives you, once again, a sort of firm basis from which to start reconstructing. And we tend to not, you know, because we live in the 21st century, not to think in those terms. But honestly, the sense of meaning, extracting meaning from experience is key and was very effective for the Jews. And finally, the social treatment of trauma, understanding that this is a traumatic experience. A thing as simple as a day, a memorial day held every year with a fixed liturgy and means of remembering in community and so on, are very, very effective means of providing refugees the tools that they need to reconstruct their lives. Like I said, I'm not, I haven't got too many. I mean, I'd love it if this book would be helpful. I think those are directions that contemporary policymakers could look at with some benefit. Obviously, not in the same way as the 17th century, because it's a different world. But those ideas that worked so well for the use of the 17th century, they may have within them elements that could be used in order to vitiate you know, the terrible issues of refugees that blight our own world. Listen, I'm, I can always hope. It's always, always hope that your work has a broader significance. I think that we're in agreement that scholars always would like it if their work speaks beyond the specific things that, that we're writing about. And I think that you pointed to some really interesting elements of thinking about what we can learn from looking at this specific case and, and what worked and what didn't work for the Jews in its aftermath in terms of rebuilding Jewish life. But I also think that the part of what's interesting here as well is that is that it also allows us to look at the causes of crises, of refugee crises, and think about where are these coming from? What are ways that we can perhaps look out for coming crises. You know, we can't really predict the future. I think, uh, you know, again, both of us are in agreement. As historians, really, we're, we're looking backwards more than looking forwards. But I think that there's an interesting element here also of just thinking about the importance of refugees in the sense that I think that there are instances where groups of people who are not refugees don't really pay attention or don't pay enough attention to refugee groups. And so there's something I think really powerful for us to be thinking about the fact that these refugee experiences, it's not just a number, right? When we talk about X number of Palestinian refugees or you know, X number of you know refugees who are fleeing from a war zone in one place or another, but that, that this is a personal experience for each person and also for their descendants as well. 
that's exactly the starting point that we had, right? This idea of bringing the story down to the personal level so that you can really understand the meaning of a refugee crisis because its meaning is of an aggregate of individuals. I mean, we, we think in numbers and broad formations or whatever, but in fact, it's an aggregation of individual experiences and we need to understand those if we're going to understand what refugee crises mean. I'm not sure we can stop them happening but we can certainly be in a situation in order to start dealing with them much more effectively if we understand what they mean in personal terms and how individuals can be helped in the situation in which they find themselves, which is what you know, we as historians do. We're looking at the very specific moment. But it's by being able to focus in on the individual in that particular context that gives you the possibility of making more helpful generalizations, I think. All right. Well, thank you so much, Adam. This has been a really fascinating conversation, deep dive into this history and what we can learn from it. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. I enjoyed it very much. And thanks to you for listening to this episode with Adam Teller. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.